thank you very much indeed. Nice to be here. It really is nice to be here. We'll miss you down in the town centre. This is where it's happening, here in Hazelmere. Mind you, when I'm in the town centre, I say the town centre is where it's happening. But anyway, um, small groups, Richard's right, small groups, so important to us here at King's. Uh, we love everybody to be in a small group. And the reason we think they're so important is Jesus did. He had his own small group, so, and he knew what he was doing. And if we're going to, we're going to grow individually and, and as the body of Christ in, in our love for Jesus Small groups is really where it's at. So we're going to be looking at small groups really from two perspectives this morning. The first is, what is it that drives leaders to innovate, to come up with new ideas, to step forward, take that step of courage and that step of faith to lead something? Uh, And then secondly, we're going to hear how vital, how important small groups are for various stages and pressure points that uh, we may go through in life. So we're going to start with uh, James and Eva O'Connor. Now, I want you to make them feel super welcome because being on the stage is something they wouldn't choose to do normally. Let's make them feel welcome. If you could pick up the mic from Rich en route, that'd be really helpful. That's great. I just want to introduce, in case you don't know, uh, this is James, this is Eva. James and Eva have been heading up uh, our night shelter. So let me just explain what that is. So night shelter is a cooperation between many, many churches in the High Wycombe area. And uh, it runs, it operates a safe overnight shelter for people who are homeless, people without accommodation. And it, it commences at the beginning of January. It runs consecutively every single night right through, uh, seven days a week, right through to the end of March. And on a Sunday night, Monday morning, down in our town centre site, in our West End Hall and the town centre site, um, we have uh, our one night of night shelter. And James and Eva have been running that for us. That's a, quite, a, quite a, an undertaking. Um, night shelter itself has been running for about 11 years. And I think, James, you've been with it really right right from the start and either you've been serving for a number of years as well though this year was your first year now I do know either it can be very intimidating actually to to uh to start to work with people who are homeless people we might feel very very different from us and it can be a little bit daunting a little bit scary and to be honest I imagine it's not as daunting and scary as being up here right now with me I appreciate no I, I appreciate that but actually I think if we're all honest, that there can be a barrier, an us and them barrier between us serving people we might consider to be to be homeless in very difficult circumstances. Eva, can you give us a flavour? How did you overcome your own sense of personal nervousness before serving the homeless? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, I just felt like the homeless are not loved enough, and that people are scared of um, showing love. So I just wanted to share some of God's love with them and to show them, yeah, a bit of kindness, I mm-hmm. guess, yeah. I, I know you said to me that actually you felt that they deserve to have what you have, which is God's love yeah. uh, in their lives. Now, but also the way the night shelter is structured, uh, certain things that are intentionally done to get as good an atmosphere as possible. So you can just take a flavor of one or two things that, that, that they do. So yeah, we always um, begin with prayer, um, so that yeah brings God more into it and gives us more peace. Yeah. yeah. 
So you get, by praying, it actually brings God's peace into, actually, what's something, something that could be quite daunting? So in reality, I think your experience, uh, and it's the experience of a number of people, actually, in reality, it's not as scary as it might seem uh, beforehand. So over to, so I'm going to put you out of your misery now, <laughs> but we're going to go straight over to James and remain with James for the rest of this. You've been helping on this, so as well as leading, your particular slot was the evening shift. So that's getting there about four or five o'clock in the evening, finishing at about 10, setting up, providing uh, food. What are some of the highlights for, for you for serving this year at Night Shelter? Well, for me, it's um, sitting down with the guys, listening to them, being able to input into their lives, you know, find out what's going on in their lives. And also the, the fact that we've seen so many housed, you know, we've seen 25 out of the 35 guests housed, which is, which is really good. Can I just pause that? So what we're saying is there were 35 clients total this year, yeah. individual clients yeah. that came. 25 of those have subsequently gone into permanent housing yeah. as a result. I think that's worth applauding. You know I mean? that yeah. It's remarkable. It works. Praise the Lord. You also had I, I, some really interesting times, night shelters. So you learnt how the fire alarm system yes, works yeah. down at yeah. West End Hall. When some meat went into the oven, uh, it had some un unexpected effects. We worked at the, our smoke alarms work, yeah. and the fire brigade show up. It, it, yeah, so that, that 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 was fun. Yeah. That was a, a little bonus there. Um, so if we think about the guests again. So you mentioned 25 out of the 35 being rehoused permanently. Give us a scale of night shelter. How many guests do you, do you typically have? And how many do you have at a peak time this year? Normally on an average Sunday, we'd have 12. That's the main capacity for the shelter throughout all the venues. And, but one night we had 15 this year because it was particularly cold and the severe weather protocol hadn't been called by the council so yeah we had 15 at one point so that's, that, that's a lot mainly <coughs> men mainly of, men, of yeah. course so actually it's been a, it's, I think it's been the busiest year it's been a very very busy year for night shelter and statistics not only in the UK but right across Europe are showing that, that, that sadly homelessness is on the <coughs> rise and that's put an extra pressure and need for the night shelter this year but I guess I think if we if we're honest, it's probably very easy for us to have preconceived ideas or, or stereotypes of what it is that can drive people into homelessness. But, James, in your experience, what are those factors that can cause people to become homeless? Lots of different elements, really. You get people from all different walks of life, you know. You get people that fall on hard times, businesses falling through, or marriage breakdowns being made unemployed and unable to pay mortgage or rent or falling out with parents, lots of, lots of different people. So you, you, we were talking, you mentioned a, a Muslim couple that, yes. uh, that, that, that were part of the shelter a few years ago. Yeah. How did they arrive? Well, their families didn't approve of their relationship, so they shunned them and cut them off, basically. And, and so they're homeless. So they became homeless. Yeah. One thing you, you also mentioned is that often there is a common theme, a common thread mm. that can, can drive people into homelessness. What's that often very, very typical driver? Addiction to alcohol and drugs can be a huge, huge factor as well. And uh, 
everything that comes with that, like the debt and the disorder that that brings. So can I ask you, why, why for you is serving the homeless so important to you? So I know that God has a huge heart for these people and he wants to see them do well and get out of this destructive patterns and the ruts that they're in. And so we want to show God's love to them and help take care of their basic needs, really. Now, you mentioned that, that you know, addictions can be a big trigger mm. and, and cause of homelessness. How, uh, and drug, drug abuse, how have drugs and addictions, how have they affected you personally in the past? Well, my life was ruined by drugs in the past and using drugs, yeah. And you were saying to me that actually your life was completely messed up yeah. by drugs. What happened? Well, I basically turned into a paranoid mess, really. It just really affected me mentally. And I was completely bound by fear, just unable to function, really. Uh, what about relationships? What, what was the effect there? I was very isolated. I couldn't trust anybody, you know. It was a very, very dark place to be in, really. Yeah. So you, so you're in this place, the dark place, and you hit a real crisis. Mm. You hit a sort of life-changing moment, and that was all triggered by the consequence of, of of sustained drug use. How did you get out of that cycle of drug use, of the fear, the relational breakdown that went with that? Mm. Well, I was very fortunate to go to a place called Battelle in Birmingham, which is a Christian rehabilitation community started by WEC and. Uh, that's where I encountered God and broke the cycle, really. Now, I most of us will have no idea how a place like that works. And so can you give us an idea, give us a flavor? What was the regime like at Battelle? And what aspects make it distinctive in terms of its <coughs> approach? So it's a very sort of structured community. You know, the, there's a, a sort of system of leadership there, like, from the ground up, they're all people that have been through through the front door. You know, there's nobody there with a textbook telling you what you should and shouldn't do. They're all guys that have been changed by God themselves. And you work six days a week, and the only thing they have to offer is the gospel. Really, there's no no replacement drugs, nothing, no medical help, no self-help steps or anything it's just just god you mentioned that you have a very rigid pattern of work and but you're off drugs straight away no replacement it's it's suddenly from from drug use to no drug use at all i mean yeah. what on earth kept you going through all that <clears throat> for me personally it was uh looking around me and seeing these guys that used to be heroin addicts used to be like gangsters and really quite nasty people a lot of them you could tell but they were completely changed they, they were serving people they were loving people and that made me question what's happened to them really so you have this question how did you so in other words how why are they changed how did you try and answer that question of why these people were different well that caused me to seek god to seek to find out what had happened to them and how I could get that. But I was, I was in such a paranoid place, I couldn't trust what they were saying. I couldn't receive it from them because I thought they were a cult or something. And I thought they were, I was 
just in a very dark place. So that led me to seek for myself my own personal relationship with God. So that, yeah. So you experienced God in Battelle. Yeah. And, and actually, that experience of God was a transformation one. It was a setting free experience for you. Was that that change? Was it a sudden thing? Or was it a, more of a gradual process, or both? It was a bit of both, really. Um, most of it was gradual. I mean, over a pe- I was there for two, two and a half years, really. Um, but there was a particular evening where a prophet had come over from the States, and he called me out and prophesied over me. And from that night forward, I'd, something did feel like it had come off, off of me, something that had been all these nagging thoughts and torment really was was gone so the torment lifted and then of course you had to work out yeah. all the lifestyle stuff after that mm. now that was 11 <coughs> years ago that was 2007 and you've been clean no drugs since 2005 can we celebrate that i think that's a great it's good, it's good isn't it so often we don't get to hear these stories and that you know that's a huge uh, achievement, you know, a lot of people that enter this battle don't get free. So what is it that's replaced the drugs? Well, for me, it's my um, walk with God, you know. Uh, he's given me hope. He's given me a wife and three kids, my own business. I'm pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that distracts you. Uh, but if we go back pre-Patel days, did you ever think you'd be in the position you're in now? No chance. I, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see a future. Um, and because walking with God wasn't something you did prior to going to Patel, was it? No, no. So you've experienced really radical transformation in, in your own life. And you attribute that to God and God's involvement, God saving you. How does that shape how you want to serve other people? Well, that sort of gives me the confidence and the boldness to see that what God's done in my life, he wants to and can do in others. So I want to see that happen. So if if you look ahead, if you dream about uh, what God could do for others, what is it you'd love to see in the church? And when I say you, I'm talking talking about you and and Eva and others. So we'd like to see... group environment where people are welcome who have addiction problems and it's accessible to them where they they can encounter God's love really and we can introduce them to him so he can change their lives. I know uh, one thing that you really underline when when we met before is who does the change. Hmm. So uh, your point was actually we're not trying to change people's lives, we're trying to love them. It is God that changes people's lives and that's a key thing and Trusting God, actually, to, to do that process of transformation. And I know that uh, James, you and Eva and uh, Andy uh, uh, and Anna Lamb, we were looking at how do other churches do this? They do it really, really well. And how can we use the relationships we already have, like, for instance, with the Night Shelter and Wickham Homeless Connection? How can we put something together that will will bring about change in people's lives. And you're launching a group this term um, to start to prepare. So it's a prepare. How are we going to practically work this out on the ground? Why should people get involved with this group? 
Well, if anyone's got a heart for seeing people's lives changed, really, whether or not they've got a background of addiction or anything, it, just if you want to see God move in people's lives and get involved, really. That's great. Yes, I think we've all experienced God's transformation. So the group that's called Prayer for Ch- Pray for Change, that's Sunday afternoons, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's to help plan practically. How is this going to work out on the ground? How are we going to see people? Are we going to welcome people with addictions and see them transformed and encounter Jesus in or have an opportunity? So if you've got a heart for this, can I encourage you? You can sign up today. And as it said on the video, go to the website, sign up today. And I think this is key. This is key to what our mission is as a church. Our mission as a church is this, ordinary people. That means everybody, everybody, changed by Jesus to change the world. And this is exactly in the center of that. I'd love us quickly now to pray for James and Eva uh, and Andy and Anna as well. Do you know, what a story. What a story from being lost in drug abuse to wanting to lead others into the arms of Jesus and out of that lifestyle. It's an incredible story. Can we pray together? If you're happy to pray this way, just put your hand out. Not that there's anything special about it. It just shows that actually we're engaged in this. So if you're comfortable, just put your hand out. Well, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for James and Eva and Andy and Anna as well. Lord, we pray, pray for your success in this area. Pray for your wisdom and your power and your protection over this work. And also over them as a family, over their children as a marriage. Lord, would you build something wonderful that glorifies Jesus, <laughs> that has the power of God right at the heart of it, the love of Jesus Christ. May we see more than we can dream of or imagine, but let it be good. But shield us from the evil one and shield us from making mistakes. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Can we, by the way, James and Eva have for 13 weeks headed up our night shelter. That's three shifts every week. For th- Can we show our appreciation? That's some serving. We're so grateful. Thanks very much. You can go down and sit and relax now. Do you know what? I, I think this shows something wonderful. You, they've come out an idea for a small group, which we're going to trust is going to become a ministry in the church. And... You might have an idea for something we haven't thought of, something we haven't done yet as a small group. And if you do, we'd love to hear you. It may be, actually, you've got an idea for a small group that's, that's built on things we're already doing. That's fine, too. If you, you've got in your heart you'd love to lead something, love to lead a small group, then could you go to our website, uh, go to our small group section on our website, and you will find a place there how to sign up and register the, uh, the suggestions and ideas that you have. We would love to hear from you. Well, I'd now like to introduce, we're going to look at what is like life like in a small group through the ups and downs of just normal life. So I'd like to welcome Sally Bundock. Let's make Sally feel very, very welcome. She joins me. Great. Thank you for joining me, Sally. I think a number of people might recognize you because last term we did the Invited series, and you spoke and preached for the first time on that Invited series. And uh, you mentioned this then, but a number of people might not have been here or might have forgotten. You work in an industry that I guess a lot of people would think is very glamorous and very high profile. And for those of us who might not be familiar with what you do, could you please give us the headlines about Thank you. 
I thought that might be too subtle, but anyway, I appreciate, no, I'm grateful. The headlines, you, if you're not understanding, you'll see in a moment, about what you do and what you enjoy about it. Okay. So the headlines are, BBC News, uh, early in the morning, I, I get up for work at about two o'clock. I'm at the BBC at three o'clock in central London on air at five. One hour of international news, business and sport, which is my programme on BBC One World and News Channel. And I do it four days a week. I, I absolutely love the job. That I don't like the alarm call. That's the one nasty factor. 1.30, is it the alarm 1 call? 1.50 a.m. Yeah. Every minute counts. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, it's a really rewarding job. I thoroughly enjoy it. But it's a job that I can leave at sort of 10 a.m. and be home for the rest of the day with my children, which is really important to me. And um, I really feel a positioning as well. It's a very responsible job. And I have a lot of editorial say. And uh, we have a very, very big audience globally at that time, but also in the UK. And I really have a sense of, of God's positioning. And it's a real privilege to be there. A lot of it's horrible news. It's death, destruction. It's very difficult. I feel I bring some hope. I interview people every day. A lot of them are very normal people dealing with very difficult circumstances. And I believe I can handle that well and, and bring them some hope and love in their situation. So... So just to be clear, I am interviewing a BBC presenter and professional interviewer. With a book. Yeah. So no pressure then. Now, if this goes well and you're looking for a co-presenter... Yes, you're my, you're my man. Please. Are you okay. good with no sleep? <laughs> I've had three boys. I've got plenty of practice. <laughs> Church leadership also prepares you for that. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll go back. So back to... Uh, we're going to dial back. You and your family live in Beaconsfield, just down the A40... Um, and you and your husband, Paul, you moved to Beaconsfield 2003, and you, you joined King shortly after that. But you had a connection with the area beforehand, so can you just unpack how you came to the area in, in, in yes. King's in particular? Yes, well, we moved to uh, Beaconsfield because we wanted to start a family. We'd been living in London for a while, and um, we knew we couldn't afford to expand in London. So we looked outside of London. Plus, Paul was gagging to get out of London. He was not a city, city person at all. Uh, so we moved, and I uh, knew King's Church because I had friends who came to King's when they were students, friends I grew up with. They loved it. But also as well, when I was a student, I presented. I had a year in London, and during that time, I presented in High Wycombe, a Saturday morning show on 11.70 a.m., which was <laughs> Andrew Phillips's radio station, who was a part of King's Church. So I would present on that radio station as well for a year. So I really felt I knew some people, I knew the place, and, uh, and I knew that, that it was a good home, King. So we came here straight away. That's great. So you now, you now have three sons, but I'm going to dial back eight years. Uh, we just had your oldest two. Uh, they were quite young. They were five and three. And out of the blue, all of a sudden, uh, unexpectedly, Paul ends up in hospital. So can you just unpack a little bit about what was going on? Yes, happened? he had, um, one weekend, he had chronic, chronic pain sort of in the abdominal area, and we had no idea. So we, we rushed to A&E, as you do, and they thought it was a suspected appendicitis. That was their initial inquiry. But to cut a long story short, after a long process of poking, prodding, scans, tests... We were referred to King's College Hospital in Dulwich, which is a liver specialist centre in the UK. And they broke the news to us that he had uh, stage four terminal cancer, very uh, unusual cancer. Um, and it had grown from his bowel right across his liver entirely. 
And we were given a time frame of, well, not we weren't given much sort of clarity, but they said between five and 20 years, we can't cure this, but we don't know how aggressive it will be. We don't know really what you're looking at. So that's what we were told. So Paul, he's 38. He hasn't got a history of, of serious illness at all. How much of a shock was this for you both? It was a massive shock for both of us. I mean, we, we went to that meeting together, having had loads of tests. And we, it never even came into our minds that he might have cancer. We thought he, We looked at various things they thought it might be. But we never dreamed that would be what they would say to us. It was like a bus had hit us both. He was strong, big guy. Many of you know him well. I mean, he was in. A, he was just <laughs> not unwell at all. It would seem. So it was a. It was massive. And how did this affect your reaction to God's involvement? in your lives well we felt obviously when this things like this happen you just throw yourself on god because we had no other options um they they couldn't cure him or they felt they could manage it but that was about it so we threw ourselves on god we we felt we had to get into his presence start really seeking his face and um and god one time we were together worshiping praying in the kitchen and he spoke to us both really clearly um, from Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, and it was in the message, and it just says, Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it, and heartily. And we knew that was a word from God to both of us. Don't be paralyzed. I am God. Seize life. Go for it. So we did. We were obedient. <laughs> so you mentioned that Paul was told, actually, the cancer is incurable. Um, but he was put on some very new treatments, a very pioneering treatment that actually proved to be quite, quite helpful for him. Can you tell us how he got on this treatment and how you saw God move in that whole process? So initially they operated, they removed the primary tumours and what have you, and then they said, we're going to start this treatment. It's brand new, just been approved by the NHS. It's really expensive, but it could be very effective. It's highly toxic. We're going to apply to your local health authority for funding, and if they'll fund it, we'll start. Um, we had a prayer team that we got together, close friends, our home group, friends from our old church, family, who were our intercessory prayer team, and we would throw things at them that we needed prayer for. So we asked them to pray that the health authority would approve the funding. King said to us, "They'll first of all, they will turn it down. That's the hospital, King's College Hospital. King's College Hospital, yeah, yeah sorry, confusion. You know, it is confusing, because I get calls at home and say, hello, this is King's, and I'm like, uh, church or Which one? hospital, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so Kate, the, the hospital said, they will disapprove it. They'll say no. And then what we do is we appeal and we go through this whole process. It's a back and forth. <clears throat> so we got the prayer team on it. Our local health authority immediately approved the funding. And King's Hospital was completely astounded. They couldn't believe it. But we really felt that was God's favor, God's blessing. You know, he was, he was just making a way. Now, you mentioned uh, as part of that, that that you had a prayer team. And you also mentioned the small group uh, in that. What about the sm small group life for you as a family? Where did this fit in with all the pressures that you were under? 
Well, when we joined the church, we, we said, you know, we want to be a part of a home group. This is before we had connect groups, small groups, how it functions now. And we were told, well, the one that meets, it had to be a Thursday night because I don't work Friday mornings. The closest to you is in Hazelmere. It's run by Alistair and Eleanor Fulton. And, um, you know, by all means, join that group. So we did. And we prioritized it, even though we had young kids. I was working shifts. Paul was working long hours in London. We really prioritized it because we knew from our own experience that being a part of a home group or a small group, however you define it, was really important, no matter what you're, where you're at, really, because it's where you make real friendships. It's where you really get to know people and you really you know, get deep friendships beyond the kind of Sunday morning, hi, how are you, surface stuff. So it went well below the surface. Give us an idea of some of that, that, that deeper stuff, that where you were served by the group. Well, we'd been in the group about eight years before Paul was diagnosed, and when we shared with them the news, I mean, they were just with us all the way. I mean, they were shocked, they were sad, they were tearful, they, but they were in a pace of faith, they were supporting us, they were standing with us. But they prayed with us. They sometimes they supported us financially. They brought meals. They had the kids. I mean, the the list was long. And for me, recently in recent weeks, I've had one round fix my guttering, and they've ones chopped up logs. I mean, I've had everything going. Really, it's been amazing. But it's it's like family for us. And how is that? How's that been seen by people outside the church, your neighbours, for example, and your own, your own children? Well, it's funny. The neighbours all know our home group. My Many school mums know them. Um, and for the children, it's been brilliant because they've got so much support and people on hand to have them or take them away or take them off for a good time. Quite often, you know, since Paul died, he's... You know, all three boys have been taken all day to play golf or whatever. We've just felt so blessed and spoiled, actually. One thing you said to me is, throughout this whole process, you never felt you walked alone. I know that sounds like a song. It's but a cliche, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's true. <laughs> and you never felt abandoned. And so if you were to give advice now, or you give to advice to someone who's never been in a group, or that's just got out of the pattern and the rhythm of being in a group, what would you say? I would say don't neglect this because it's so integral to your walk with God. The Bible says don't give up meeting together, don't give up fellowshipping. We've just spent a long time going through Acts, looking at how they lived their lives. They were in each other's homes. They were kind of, you know, all over, all over the place. And I know it's family, and sometimes family can get on our nerves. We want to run away from family. But actually, it's so integral. And... You know, when the sun is shining, still prioritize this because the sun doesn't shine all the time. And when you really need people for us, when we really needed people, we had people that we, we, we were real family. I mean, when Paul was in hospital and then in the hospice, people like Patina would show up regularly out the blue. She'd be massaging Paul's legs and, you know, making the tea. And the hospice just all got to know our church friends, our home group friends. I mean, wherever we were, there was life spilling out in the ward, you know, wherever we were. People around us couldn't help but notice this powerful testimony of God's love. Sally, thank you. You have shared some very, very delicate things, and we really appreciate it. And we will continue to pray for you and for your wonderful boys over the next weeks and months. And uh, 
I know you've said to me, you still prioritize the home group Thursday night. That's your priority. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you.